This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momentum. Welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momentum, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative as always. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to edition 125 of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. I'm honored today to host Matt Biggie, partner at Crosslink Capital, who are focused on venture investments in enterprise and industrial IT, infrastructure, security, what they call plausible science fiction. Matt is an entrepreneur and investor with over two decades of successful general management and venture investing experience, including numerous winning investments. Prior to joining Crosslink, Matt was a venture partner with Paladin Capital. He was also the CEO and co-founder of Strategic Social Holdings, which was acquired by Constellus Group. Matt was a co-founder and president of Milcom Technologies, where he led the acquisition and commercialization of over $2 billion of R&D used to create over 10 product companies. Matt had his start serving in the U.S. Army with a distinguished record as an infantry officer and ranger in the 10th Mountain Division. He was a Bachelor of Science in International Relations from Georgetown and an MBA from Harvard. In his spare time, as if he has some, Matt is a rabid baseball fan and board member of the Honor Foundation, helping special operations veterans transition to the private sector. So Matt, it is truly a pleasure to host you today on our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast. Well, hey, Ken, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, you know, I've always enjoyed our discussions and I'm looking forward to this one too. As well, as well, and uh, it's uh, it's high time that we finally got you cornered for uh, a great conversation, which I'm looking forward to. So, um, starting off in 2021, we've kind of changed the uh, our, our messaging right up front to uh, talking about what we like to call the red thread. And so, tell me a little bit about what you would consider the red thread of your digital industry leadership journey. Sure, you know, to me, it, it really gets down to. Kind of an epiphany I had in the mid-90s, uh, my first job after the military, where I discovered that if you can measure something, you can improve it. Uh, not not exactly rocket science, but we'll call it instrumentation in today's uh, parlance. And it's really about the ability to measure the physical world using information technology so that you can better understand what's going on around you and then improve it using technology and human tools to make it happen. You know, I've uh, I've often heard that life is divided into three phases, learning, earning, and returning. Uh, so my own corollary, if you will, is that venture investing is returning with return. But you made a, a solid, an interesting jump right from the military effectively into ventures with Milcom. What, um, what inspired that transition? You know, I'll, I'll steal a turn of phrase from a uh, venerable venture capitalist, Mike Zach, who was a partner in Charles River Ventures. And about 25 years ago, uh, he was poking a little bit of fun at me when he said I was unencumbered by the laws of physics, um, mostly implying that I didn't know what they were. Uh, he was largely right. I don't have a technical uh, degree. But, you know, when... When we were getting Milcom off the ground, a lot of it, you know, a lot of our optimism 
which is necessary as a founder, was a function of not realizing we were supposed to fail. Uh, the history of commercializing defense technology is one of um, very consistent failure. Uh, and it gets back to one of the things I love about baseball is it's, it's a game where if you bat 300, you're going to the Hall of Fame. And, you know, the venture world and startup world is very similar in terms of uh, the success rate. You know, it, it, being unencumbered by the status quo is, is really frequently the basis for innovation because you, you test the boundaries of what is accepted as realistic. And by testing those boundaries, you can often get beyond them. And, you know, in, in my brief role as an inventory control manager at Cintas, what I learned was that if you start looking at the data around you, you're going to see more opportunity. And as it turned out, my general manager at Cintas was the person who introduced me to, you know, the, my co-founders of Milcom. And, uh, and he ultimately was one of our first investors. So it was a great way to start my post-military life. And, um, you know, and I guess, uh, wouldn't say I've had a career, but I've had a series of things that I've done that have worked out pretty well so far. <laughs> yeah, surely I would say so. In uh, in 2016, you joined Crosslink Capital, so a Silicon Valley-based firm focused on IT-related investments. Your particular focus, I believe, is enterprise IT, infrastructure, security, and, and again, with a dose of plausible science fiction. So tell us a bit about the firm and what you mean by plausible science fiction. Sure. So, so Crosslink's been around for about 30 years. It's a, it was originally a spin out of Robertson Stevens and the firm's got, you know, a, a wonderful and rich history of investing in industry leading companies. Um, when I sold strategic social, uh, you know, and then I did my indentured servitude with the buyer, the, yeah, I knew I wanted to get back to full-time venture investing and, it was it was great to reconnect with uh, Eric Chin and David Silverman, two longtime multi-decade friends. Eric and I worked together at Milcom. We also went to grad school together. David and I have been uh, looking at opportunities together for over two decades. Uh, tried to work together in the past, but timing uh, conspired against us. And so when they presented the opportunity to join the firm, it, it really was a no-brainer. Um, it's it's always really exciting to get to work with people where you have a high degree of mutual respect, trust, and admiration. Uh, so that's just been a phenomenal last five years. We've raised three new funds, um, and we've had very, very uh, exciting performance from all three of those funds, and hopefully we'll continue to, to do that as we move things forward. Plausible science fiction uh, is really an outgrowth of my desire to find things which are currently just outside the edge of possible and try to help make them real. Uh, you know, one example of that is a company called Mesh Networks that, uh, you know, we spun it out of ITT Industries in the late 90s where, you know, we were leveraging over 200 million of research and development to enable a wireless uh, networking topology that did not require infrastructure. And effectively, the goal was to load balance metropolitan statistical areas. At the time, people didn't believe it was possible. We took that technology, we turned it into a product, and 
you know, it, it was just an exciting journey. Ultimately, we sold the business to Motorola, and they continue to leverage the intellectual property. Uh, Cloud Shield and Neris are two uh, cybersecurity companies where we, you know, accomplished very similar things, uh, doing things that people didn't believe possible at the time. And uh, those investments have have really altered the way uh, network security has functioned over the last 20 years. Uh, you know, there are two small asterisks uh, in, in the history of cybersecurity, but I believe they were high-impact asterisks. So that, that's kind of how we think about plausible science fiction. Uh, current examples include a 3 uh, printed uh, rocket motor company uh, in our portfolio, and uh, we've got another one that uh, does hardware agnostic gate compilers for quantum computing. And you know, these are things that really make the future possible, in my opinion. Well, certainly you guys are doing something right because uh, I count at least uh, eight winning investments. You mentioned several already, Mesh Networks to Motorola, Cloud Shield, SAIC, Neris to Boeing, ArcSight to HP, Veridin to Phi. Uh, So to what do you attribute your ability to consistently back such winners? It's all about the people. Uh, Great people solving meaningful problems is really the way we think about investing at Crosslink. Uh, and, and frankly, it's the way I've always, you know, felt teams are best poised to achieve success, whether that was, you know, back in the military as platoon leader, um, you know, work, working with soldiers and infantry units, or, you know, thinking about my career as an entrepreneur and an operator and, and really investing. If, if you find talented high integrity people who are, you know, passionate about solving problems and solving big problems. To me, those are the very basic ingredients of success. And then it's, uh, then it's up to, you know, just executing on that, uh, on that vision. You know, we're uh, well, Mint is proud to be co-investors with you on uh, Akua and uh, and to support GoExpedi uh, and Descartes Labs. Um, you know, you clearly are picking uh, investment winners, as as we said a moment ago. But how do you scale them? You know, again, this gets back to people. Um, you know, one one of my my favorite things to discuss with entrepreneurs is uh, you know, my belief that CEOs have to sell three things in order to be successful. They have to be able to sell the product, their vision, and their stock certificates. If you as a founder cannot sell your product, you can't expect anyone else to. If you can't sell your vision, you're never going to attract the right people to your your vision. And if you can't sell your stock certificate, you can't pay for the first two things. So it, it really does come down to that CEO being able to sell and attract the right people. If you attract those right people to your vision, a lot of the rest of it's going to fall into place because the right people are the ones that are going to help you in the execution phase to build a meaningful long-term business. And, you know, we're, we're excited about all three of those companies. And, you know, we, we believe that they have the potential to, to be long-term exciting enterprises. Yeah, fully, uh, fully agreed and uh, very happy to have the opportunity to uh, both co-invest and to support you on several of those as well. 
You know, last year, and I'm, I'm glad that we can call it last year now, um, has, has really been an unprecedented year, as we like to say, the three Ps of politics, pandemics, and protests. And interestingly enough, we've had a whole new rash of different kinds of protests just over the last couple of weeks in the United States. So we've observed that this time, however, has been a bit of a digital accelerator. And clearly, you know, you see that with, uh, you know, remote working as an example. We've also seen it in our portfolio with, you know, what we like to call remote uh, asset management as well on the industrial side. How has this, you know, triple P era affected your portfolio and investment thesis? You know, early on, uh, I guess in the last week of March 2020, uh, we sat down as a team and we we built uh, what we called our COVID resiliency index. And we picked six different attributes, evaluated each portfolio company across those six attributes, and tried to uh, you know figure out figure out where we needed to shore up certain companies and where we needed to uh, you know invest additionally in specific portfolio companies. Um, it, it, it all felt very reminiscent of both 2008 as well as 2001. And fortunately, as a team, uh, the partnership is, you know, this is our kind of third go round with uh, Black Swan Events. That said, in, in a lot of ways, I view the digital transformation investments that we've made as getting hit over the head, but by a lucky stick as opposed to a painful stick. Um, you know, even with businesses going remote, Every business still needs to generate leads. They need to pitch their offerings, build their products, get through contracting and procurement with customers, deploy product, and then collect revenue. And if you think about the world of even, you know, five years ago, performing all those tasks in a purely online manner was not possible. It wasn't just a best-in-class thing. It wasn't actually possible. And so what we've seen in nine, ten months is a near total transformation of the Global 2000 to a fully digital procurement and deployment process, which is a fantastically exciting environment in which to do business. Um, and, and it took a global pandemic to force that kind of change because the alternative was bankruptcy or for startups, you know, assignment for the benefit of creditors, neither one of which is pleasant. Um, so generally, this has bolstered our investment thesis in digital transformation. And I'd say on balance, our portfolio has benefited uh, from the current circumstances as challenging as they are. Yes, as uh, ours as too. Now, it's interesting when you think of the impact of uh, COVID, or really, you know, beginning now, hopefully post-COVID. Silicon Valley seems to be at a bit of a crossroads. You know, by all accounts, is is California still a great place to start and grow a technology business? Well, work from home has definitely changed the way people view Silicon Valley and the way they perceive the value of Silicon Valley. Um, you know, it's, you know, if, if you look at companies like Tesla, HP, Palantir, Oracle, um, you know, 
shifting their headquarters out of the region, uh, largely due to taxes. Um, you know, th- those are, you know, we'll call them headwinds to, you know, what happens in Silicon Valley. And hopefully the folks in the, our state capital of Sacramento will figure out that at some point they need to stop alienating the, uh, the, the tax base or people will vote with their feet. Um, you know, all that said, I still believe that there are more tailwinds than headwinds. And, you know, from a climate standpoint, it's one of the most amazing places on the planet to live. Uh, I think it's one of six or seven Mediterranean climates in the world. It's got one of the richest and most powerful histories of innovation of any location on the planet. Um, and, and that's an historic statement. It's not even a today's statement. Uh, when you go through the history of innovation and mankind, um, Silicon Valley very much has a meaningful place. We're still living in, uh, you know, Santa Clara County, I believe is the ninth largest economy in the world. So that, that those sort of benefits, uh, they, they don't fade lightly. And I also believe that at the end of the day, while you can have a distributed workforce uh, in my last business, you know, we had hundreds of people all over the world and we had to manage, um, you know, remotely because that's how global industry works. But at the same time, it's spending time face to face with people is what builds real trust. And I think it's very difficult to build the type of co-founder trust that's necessary to construct a meaningful organization uh, without in-person contact. And so from that standpoint, I still view Silicon Valley as the best place in the world to pull together a company, even if you end up with a workforce that's not 100% located here. Yes, it uh, it will be interesting to to see how those trends continue. We have certainly seen uh, uh, innovative economies, or uh, let's say um, uh, hubs of innovation, rise in you know it's many different countries and and regions as well. But they all still consider Silicon Valley as mecca. <laughs> so it will be interesting to see if that 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 uh, I'll call it startup tourism trade continues in uh, in that regard. Um, you know, in terms of impact, let's talk about venture capital investing as well. I mean, we've both been through the wave of probably the proponents that said, you know, I see. CEOs or initial coin offerings are going to completely change uh, uh, venture capitaling as, a, as an asset class. And of course, now over the last 18 months, at least in the U.S., we have, you know, SPACs, right? Special purpose acquisition companies, which are not ventures, but they clearly are changing the exit dynamics for venture uh, venture invested portfolio companies. So, um, you know, what's your perspective? You know, do you see either of these or any other trends changing um, venture capital investing as we know it? I guess it, it it probably colors the way we think about a ring. Yeah, it, it colors the way we think about attracting resources to companies. I, I don't think it, it really has a fundamental impact on early stage venture capital. Um, and, and when I say early stage, I you know I talk about the the seed, the Series A, the pre seed stages. Uh, you know where we spend you know the vast majority of our time. Um, at least in terms of our initial investments. I think regulatory factors have largely uh, dampened the enthusiasm around ICOs. I, I, I see that regulatory regime getting um, much more strict, and I think ultimately 
coins will be treated like securities. Um, so, I, it, you know, when when I think about ICOs on a go-forward basis, I think they'll be much more functional than financial. So less Bitcoin, more, um, you know, coins that are used to facilitate truly distributed ledger capabilities to document things, uh, smart contracts, things along those lines. Uh, from a SPAC standpoint, you know, it, it's kind of funny you think about the the dialing for dollars and the boiler rooms. Uh, there's a great Ben Affleck movie about 20 years ago. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't think people necessarily view those as SPACs, but they were SPACs. Um, but I think in today's uh, bright, shiny, cleaner approach to SPACs, it's really just another way to get public currency for your company. And I think they are a great path to listing because the, the IPO process really is not for all companies. There, there's a, a pattern matching for a successful IPO that you know folks have been looking at for decades. And I think the companies that didn't quite fit that, uh, that specification now have options like direct listings, like SPACs, um, you know, and there are some other innovations going on in, uh, in that corporate finance world. But I, I still believe that IPOs will continue to be the preponderance of new issues coming to market. But it, it is great to see those options and alternatives out there. It is, and you mentioned direct listings as well, which um, you know one might say was uh, the market's response to uh, to SPACs a bit. But uh, it's nice to have actually uh, different options uh, in there. So you know earlier I um, I mentioned your military service. I didn't thank you for your service, and uh, and thank you. I I note you're doing some work with the Honor Foundation, and uh, was quite fascinated with that. Tell us a bit about what you're uh, what you're doing there. But for start, for starters, Ken, uh, my pleasure to serve. Honestly, being a platoon leader to this day is the best job I've ever had. Um, most rewarding, selfless people. Um, basically, we're poorly paid pro athletes, uh, and I, I feel honored to have been able to serve on such a, a great team. Um, but when I got out of the military in 1996, there were really very few resources to learn about the civilian world. Um, you know, armed with a copy of uh, uh, Business Week and a uh, few conversations with friends and family, um, you know, I, I tried to emerge into a private sector that was absolutely mystifying. Um, you know, back then, the military gave you two-hour briefing, and didn't matter if you were a private or a general, you got the same briefing, and as a result, it was, well, useless. The Honor Foundation offers what amounts to an executive education program for special operators making the transition to the private sector. And if you've ever had the fortune to be around special operations personnel, what you'll find is they're in the top, you know, one to three percent of all members of the armed forces. These are truly special people who are doing incredibly special things. Uh, for the world around them. And, you know, something I like to say is they're, they're really making it their life goal to leave this world better than they found it. And when you take people with those sort of intrinsic skills, as well as the experience of performing in high pressure environments 
coupled with a consistent track record of success, you know, what you've got is high integrity leadership and operating expertise getting injected into the private sector. So for me, I, I love the mission of the Honor Foundation. I wish it was there when I got out of the military, but very selfishly, I'm investing in the macroeconomic future of this country because the people that come through the Honor Foundation will be leading this country, you know, in the coming decades that are, you know, hopefully our children are going to flourish in. It's a, uh, a great, um, great uh, foundation and a great endeavor. And uh, having been in the military myself, I can greatly appreciate the, uh, the, the how uh, difficult the transition can be if uh, if not well managed. So, you know, uh, since uh, you're at the the epicenter of so many great trends, um, if I, if you don't mind, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So, Matt, if you could start a company tomorrow, and and with the highest chance of success. What would it do? What markets would it serve? Uh, where would it be located? And how would you go about going to market? All right. Well, you know, I can't give away all my secrets. Um, but uh, yeah, as we, we do incubate companies from time to time uh, at Crosslink. Uh, we, we incubated two last year or began the incubation of two of them last year. We'll probably do another two to four uh, incubation efforts in 2021. Um, you know, currently we're incubating a security-related company. Uh, it's based on a trend that uh, you know we identified uh, in conjunction with some other uh, investors that we like doing business with, and it's a trend where you know we we look at what was in the market. We saw the meaningful gap between what was being used in the market and what was possible with modern technology. And so this company is headquarters in Silicon Valley with a distributed team. Uh, they're focused on the Global 2000 with a 100% digital product that does feature a lot of automation that leverages AI. Um, you know, to me, one of the things that I've observed, you know, just thinking all the way back to writing my first lines of code in BASIC and Pascal and, you know, later on Fortran Cobol, um, you know, and then thinking about the object-oriented languages that came after that and the ability to ultimately let finance teams play with a spreadsheet as opposed to calling IT to change hard-coded accounting rules. And, you know, on and on and on over the last 50 years, what we've seen is this continued abstraction of, you know, of complex things into simple things so that you decrease the technical skills required to wield information and you allow people to apply uh you know their their efforts more to managing conditioning and creating value out of the data as opposed to the process of extracting the data and so to me one of the highest order things that uh, entrepreneurs can be focused on right now is abstracting away complexity so that with a, you know, no code or low code approach, you can enable the business user or the business analyst to really make use of data as opposed to spending all their cycles gathering it or, uh, you know, trying to uh, abstract it. 
So when you said you couldn't give away all your secrets, I thought we were going to get a 10,000-foot uh, view of uh, some general trends. Uh, that was pretty detailed, so I'm actually even more intrigued to see what you're holding back. <laughs> <laughs> well, saying it and doing it are two different things. Yeah, so there, there you go. So, so in closing, can you provide any recommendations of people, books, or resources that inspire you? Sure. I, I, like just to call out a few folks that have really made a difference in my life, uh, you know, my life's journey. Uh, Command Sergeant Major David Drawn, who passed away a few years ago, uh, you know, he really taught me about leadership by example and, and really the art of getting people to want to do what you need them to do. Um, you know, and really just building teams. Uh, you know, Kevin Compton, uh, formerly Kleiner Perkins, has been a great mentor to me over the years. Uh, as I seek to be a better entrepreneur, better business person, a better investor, uh, you know, my partners, uh, Eric and David, we talk a lot about what we call HIT, humility, integrity, and teamwork. Um, we believe that embodies what we're all about at Crosslink. And, you know, no coincidence, that's how the three of us got to be uh, so close over the last couple of decades. Um, you know, and we're super excited to add Hill Boyer to the partnership uh, most recently. You know, and then my, my wife and son, who, uh, who have never been shy about making sure that you never stop what you're doing until you can honestly say you've done the best you're possibly capable of doing. Um, you know, so, so I appreciate their uh, constantly reminding me of that. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, things I like to read and all that, uh, you know, there's, there's the classics, uh, you know, Atlas Shrugged, The Godfather, and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, it's about people being people and how to understand what motivates them and makes them do different things. Um, you know, the vast interconnectedness is stuff. Uh, there's a Douglas Adams quote there, but you know, anything written by Neil Stevenson and of course the hitchhiker's guide are, I think actually very valuable for understanding the ripple effect of decisions and the second and third order impact they have. And then just more about leadership and team building Ender's game, starship trooper, uh, about Face by David Hackworth, Killer Angels. You know, those are a few uh, books that, you know, as I was thinking about this question, I turned around and looked at my bookshelf. And, you know, th these are all books that, you know, they, they, they stay top shelf because I, I go back to them on a regular basis. Um, so hopefully that's, uh, that's helpful. Very helpful, and uh, we could do a, uh, a probably a, an episode in and of itself on Atlas Shrugged, given the conversation we had earlier about Sacramento. So, who is John Galt? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So, Matt, thank you for spending the time with us today on the what was a very insightful interview. Well, hey, Ken, I appreciate you uh, inviting me onto the show, and uh, as always, I look forward to my discussions. Hopefully, next time. You know, I'll, I'll be uh, asking you questions because I, I always appreciate the opportunity to learn from you. No, and I greatly appreciate that about you. And yes, we've had lots of good interactions, uh, both among ourselves and among our portfolio companies. So I hope to continue that uh, collaboration. So this has been Matt Biggie, partner at Crosslink Capital. And if I can say so, a gentleman unencumbered by the status quo. So thank you for listening and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership podcast series. Take care and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. 
Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.